I grab the container of fruit and then I will put and some head on and then it goes sometimes it's stuck stuck in the funnel so I can have to put it in to the ABS pipe and then there's a hinge that is, I don't know if you can see that. Welcome to episode nine, season four of YXE Underground. I'm Eric Anderson and welcome to Megan Olfert's home. Megan is 39 years old and lives in a condominium run by Cheshire Homes in Saskatoon, which facilitates independent living for those with disabilities. Megan was a child when she was diagnosed with cerebral palsy. It started her down a path of making Saskatoon a more accessible community, even if she didn't always know she was doing it at the time. Megan's loving family has supported her at every turn, and her father, Charles Olfert, says she is the inspiration for his work in making Saskatoon accessible to people with physical and intellectual disabilities. Charles is an architect with AODBT Architecture and Interior Design in Saskatoon. He's the O in AODBT, and he is passionate about making our community a truly accessible community. On this morning in late April, I'm with Megan and Charles, along with Megan's service dog, Q, at her condo, a condo Charles helped design. Megan is showing me how she feeds Q not, using a device made of ABS pipe. Sometimes it gets stuck on the bowl, so then you have to lift. I didn't know what that, the bowl should just move forward a bit. Yep, I got it. Okay. There you go. Yep. And then it's every day, <laughs> twice a day. What, what about Q? Is he not interested? Q, good! Oh, here he comes. Can I eat He's smelling the microphone. Q, good! How? But that kind of independence is hard to find. Yeah. 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 So Megan, what is that? Thanks to my second cousins. Yeah. Because I want a way to um, be able to feed my own dog without assistance. So they figured out this on their own and hope and pray that it worked. And it has been working for 10 plus years. Um, and she is my second dog um, for service work. So it's been great. Um, right now he's eating out of a slow eating bowl, which forces him to eat slowly instead of gobbling it down in one second. I feel like I need one of those some days, Megan. Okay. Megan's condo was thoughtfully designed to make life as accessible as possible for her. Charles notes that the ceiling track lifts in the bedroom and bathroom make transferring Megan from her wheelchair to the bathtub and toilet very easy. 
He points out the height of the counters, lower than what you might find in your own home, but the perfect height for Megan to prepare a meal or work at her computer. I've known Charles for a few years. I met him through my job at Sherbrooke Community Centre where he has shared his architectural design knowledge for years. Spend a few minutes with Charles and you'll quickly realize how passionate he is about accessibility. But I was always curious about where that passion came from and how he's trying to influence others in Saskatoon to take accessibility seriously. When I asked Charles if he would be on the podcast, he gave an enthusiastic yes and then said, you have to come and tour our house. That's where the story starts. Well, you're looking at our uh, our house, and as I was saying before, it's an accessible house. And for us, I mean, I'm an architect. Accessibility isn't really a passion of mine. It's really a lifestyle because we have a daughter with a disability. Everything that I've been doing has this sort of lens that's uh, part of my work. And so I think for you to get a sense of, of what it's like to have a, a, a lifestyle that responds to accessibility, I'm going to take you through our house because we built this 36 years ago and our daughter was I think three and we had just realized that she was going to be using a wheelchair and had some levels of disability so uh, the house is accessible and uh, we've made a number of renovations but you can see how convenient it is. She moved out when she was 18 because we've encouraged independence and we'll introduce you to her later and just realize how independent she has become. But uh, we've continued to live with the benefits that she's left us in terms of accessibility. So you come into the driveway and you can see it's all level, right? And then you roll right into the front door and a lot of people don't notice that it's an accessible house because there's no giant ramp in front and I didn't want this to look accessible. So everything is, uh, you can just roll onto the deck here uh, when you come in the front door, uh, you just roll right in. And so if you're moving in a fridge or a washer and dryer, or if your company has a stroller, it's no problem, right? And people don't realize how convenient that is. Charles and his wife Lila had just designed and built their dream house when Megan was born. That house had different levels and was full of stairs. When Megan was diagnosed with cerebral palsy at nine months, Charles and Lila knew their dream house would not work for their daughter. So Charles got to work on designing a new home, a fully accessible home, a home he and his wife have been living in for the last 36 years. Uh, what else can I tell you about this? Mostly it's about the open space uh, and the ability to, to really get around. So we have lot, no dead ends. So when Megan was here in her wheelchair, she takes up a lot of space and, and you know, blocks the area. So you got to go the other way, you know. And here in the hallway, we've got a a wraparound hallway. This is the workroom, so this is very important space. So we used to have four stations, one for each of our kids and one for me and one for Lila, but now she has kind of taken over the space for the kids, so I just have a quarter left. But again here, double doors are open, so Megan, when she's here, she can roll around, take lots of space, and it's good for us too because there's lots of room. Um, we sometimes lay things on the floor and have projects. Okay, these are the kids' bedrooms here, so again, the turning radius so she can get around. And this was her bedroom when she lived, when, when Megan lived at home, she was in here. Uh, so you can see we eventually installed a ceiling track. And then this goes directly into her bathroom, which is also the public bathroom, which works really well because we have this large area for the shower. And now if we want to wash our bikes, we just roll them in here and hose them off. 
if you want to clean her wheelchair. It's an easy thing to do. Like nobody ever has a roll-in shower by the back door, but we do, you know. Let's say you have your rubber boots and you want to clean them. You can just do that. And uh, then there's a therapy tub, which, you know, I like when I have a cold. So it's not, <laughs> just take advantage of all these things. And then we have artwork hanging from the wheelchair track now. But so we have a, a moon hanging in the washroom. It's a good best place to hang a moon, don't you think? Now, as you're going out to the back door, this is something that I'll point out as a real feature. A lot of people are intrigued by the walkout basement concept. Well, we have a new idea. It's called connecting your main floor to the yard. It's very cool. It's a new thing that people don't do now. <laughs> and so you can just roll directly uh, out and uh, you're in the backyard. So these, these uh, decks have connections that are accessible around both sides of the house. So uh, that works pretty well. And then again, if you're rolling the barbecue, well, let's say you're, you're taking your, your winter tires to the storage shed in the back, just put them in the wheelbarrow and you just roll around, everything's level. I mean, the whole story of our yard is about Megan. So you'll notice that we have a hill in here. Most people have flat yards and you'd think that we would have a flat yard because of accessibility, but we wanted to make uh, make it as interesting for her as possible. And so we have a wheelchair accessible treehouse up here. Uh, and then the, there was a sand pit below, which was also accessible. So the kids would play up and down with uh, cranes and stuff. And so it was, it was a way of getting the neighborhood kids drawn in here. And she was part of the activity and it worked really well. You know, so you make it interesting. Um, but now it's, a, <laughs> since she left, it's now become a three bin compost. <laughs> So flexible, but I can still roll my wheelbarrow right in here, fill up the dirt and take it to the front yard where the flower pots are. So it, it works very well. And then the, the wheelchair accessible treehouse has now become a storage area for winter tires, but also very easy. Uh, so let's continue here. Having an accessible home gave Megan a chance to host her friends and feel included in social settings. It felt like um, I'm an equal ground. Um, with the other kids, um, because sometimes being disabled means you have to do things differently, even though you can do the same thing. Megan works at Home Depot in Saskatoon's Stonebridge suburb. She has been helping customers find what they need for the past 14 years and is grateful for the opportunity Home Depot has given her. She would love to see more businesses and organizations make accessibility a priority. We as human beings need to be more um, knowing about how to include other people who are disabled intellectually or physically, um, whether it's in a different way or because we are the same as anyone else. Charles is on the same page as his daughter. He wants more businesses, more organizations to prioritize accessibility. One of the ways he is doing this is by showing clients the benefits of the Rick Hansen Foundation's certification course. Now, it's a way for architects to work alongside clients to ensure accessibility is done properly and is one of the many topics Charles and I covered when we finished touring the family home. We sat down inside a small, cozy structure in the backyard, and I started by asking Charles if he could take listeners back to when Megan was a child and the circumstances that led to her cerebral palsy diagnosis. 
just quite a bit of an emotional roller coaster. We didn't really know she was going to be, uh, she had cerebral palsy is what she has. We didn't know that until she was about nine months old, the diagnosed. And it was just, you know, her development was, she couldn't sit properly. And then, you know, we had a friend who was a doctor who said, you know, we should check this out. And uh, at that point, it's quite devastating. I mean, other families will realize this. Um, and you immediately want to fix it. You, well, you, with cerebral palsy, for those that don't know, it's it's kind of like having a stroke before you were born, sort of. So it can affect uh, anything from just a slight limp to almost being a vegetable. Like it's a full gamut, just like having a stroke. So uh, with Megan, we didn't know quite what her capabilities were going to be. We just knew that our life was going to be very, very different. And at the time, uh, we had just built our brand new dream architect house, every floor Every, every room was on a different level. Like we had so many stairs. It was very cool. I just, you know, come to school and we built this wonderful house. <laughs> and we thought, well, I don't think this is going to work. So uh, then we immediately started planning uh, uh, something that would be at least on one level. So we knew where this was going to go. And she used uh, a large stroller for the first few years and then got into a manual wheelchair and then a, a power wheelchair later on. But all of that was easily accommodated in, in this kind of a, a layout in the house. So that's been good. Things have changed too. Um, Again, we, there used to be a trampoline underneath that area where the, where the chairs are. So <laughs> there's still a hole there, but we built the trampoline into the ground rather than up so that I mean, Megan could participate uh, not on the trampoline, although she did when she was quite little. We shouldn't probably talk about that. Had lots of fun. <laughs> and mostly with her uncle. But anyway, uh, she also got to participate with that same uncle uh, doing skiing and all kinds of things so when she was younger that probably others wouldn't necessarily have had an opportunity. So she, she got to participate in lots of things and we tried to make that make, make uh, inclusive and give her the opportunity to be independent. And um, yeah, where are we going with this? So that's, yeah. But, and that was something that you touched on earlier when we were just walking around the backyard was the importance of, of Megan feeling included and and like like you said too with with the neighborhood children and and you've got like if if you want to tell the story again about the the accessible treehouse but just on a bigger scale it's about the accessibility making it so that she could feel like like well, every other that, kid that, in the neighborhood that is a really big problem i mean uh Megan aside, I think anyone that's got a disability or is using a wheelchair feels really constrained because how many houses can you go into? You can't visit people. It's so we always had to have people come here and and we wanted to set it up so that could happen. But it's really unfortunate. And this is part of uh, what we were working towards at Sherbrooke so that even though people live in two-story homes, every house in that whole complex, 333 Living, would have the ability to accommodate a visitor in a wheelchair, whether it was one of the elders from, from Sherbrooke or whether it was uh, a younger person that has a disability, to have, have that person be able to come into your home is really cool. And it's very, very rare, you know? As a parent, do you, do you remember how it felt to see kids come over and, and play in the treehouse and there's a trampoline in the ground? And like, what, what was that like as a dad? You know, I don't remember thinking about it. It's just, you know, you're, you're just... We, we ended up playing with them too, probably, most of the time. <laughs> that's, that's so long ago, Eric. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Uh, I mean, although now we have all these other neighborhood kids, and they, they think that sometimes they come over and ask, could we go into your yard, you know? Because <laughs> so, it is kind of unusual. And yeah. uh, they, it's also really good for, for uh, dogs. So Megan's uh, dog, Q, will come over here, and Bryn has a dog named Ash 
and it's just like a, a playground for pets out here. You can imagine they yeah. run up and down, go behind the hill, tear around. So it's pretty good. Yeah, but I, I wonder too, like the the fact that maybe it's not running like vivid memories, but the maybe it was maybe it's because and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but um, it was just that was just regular life for you guys, wasn't it? it like it was, yeah. yeah. But so much of your life is planned around accessibility. Like it was uh, to the point where you know, your your day-to-day -day work is kind of making things work for Megan. And then uh, we worried that Bryn wasn't getting the same level of of, of attention, you know, because you, he's, he can do stuff in a different way. So when Megan went to Camp Easter Seal every summer, we, we always made that uh, as inaccessible a holiday as we could. So we would, we would tend to go places where we could climb on the boulders or go down rivers or something that was uh, not really possible. Uh, and I think that was something Brent appreciated. Well, we did, we did too. It was just, yeah. so we, it kind of, even when you're not with someone who is, or needing help like that, it affects how you do things. You yeah. know, it's just part of your lifestyle. Um, what, I, I'm just trying to picture like as, as a young, as a young parent, and especially with your, with your architecture background, um, like was it when, when you're designing, you know, these spaces for, for Megan, is it like, was it Charles, was it scary for you or was it intimidating or was, did you see it as... No, no you, you become an advocate. I mean, it was very interesting to watch Lila's evolution. She was quite uh, restrained. <laughs> and, you know, uh, when a parent gets to be an advocate for your child, they become quite aggressive, you know. So things were accomplished, you know, at, at all stages, you know, and... Uh, We've got a great city for accessibility, really, compared to so many. But there was every every time Megan wanted to do something, there was usually a little barrier that that uh, one of us had to get involved with. And we were part of a group called the Cerebral Palsy Association. It's a bunch of young parents who were experiencing these issues. Uh, first time Megan went to vote, couldn't get into the school, the voting door. So we a lot of phoned the school board, and they wanted to. Listen, well, you can go in this other door, and you can roll. No, no, we want to go in this door. You know, so. She pretty much made them fix the door. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so when we, uh, she went to school at uh, George Vanier and, and they had to build a ramp. It wasn't accessible when she went there. So, so that school became accessible for her. And then as we were designing, uh, we did lots of schools for the Catholic school division. And we were doing St. Joseph High School. And if you ever go to St. Joseph High School, it has the very best accessible washroom in the city. So there's subtle things they don't really think about, but... Megan makes that happen. And if you go to what she did a year at university too, and so we put the very best wheelchair accessible washroom into the Thorvaldson building. It's even got tracks in it. You, you won't find that. And I guess it wasn't, um, that's just a natural offshoot of me working and knowing that Megan's part of that. So she's had an impact in ways she had, didn't realize, I would say, that wow. other people benefit from. Yeah. So, so Megan goes, gets ready for school at St. Joseph's High School, and, and as, a, as a dad, but then as an architect too, it's like there's an opportunity there, isn't there? It's a big one-level school with lots of open space. Now, I won't say it's exclusive. The school board had a vision and all kinds of things, but there's subtle changes that I guess affect you in knowing that she was going to go there. Yeah, so it's a nice... Have you been to St. Joseph's School? No, no, I haven't. Oh, you should check it out. Okay. It's really... You come in the front door. It's very open. It's all level. It's a big open space. Yeah, yeah. Um, you you mentioned that there, like the the role a parent can play as as an advocate. Um, is, is that something, Charles, that that you have um, that you embraced right away, or was that something that you you sort of grown into as 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 Megan's you know journey um, has has gone on? 
Oh, that I, I don't think I've really embraced it at all. I think that's become Lila's role. She's really good at this, you know, uh, even to the point of going to school, there was uh, uh, doing math. I remember this. She, she had to write out all of these equations. You know, you, you write out these sheets and you have to put the answer down. Well, for Megan, it takes forever. Like she doesn't write that well. And so it, it and they did, don't you have these things pre-printed? Well, no, that's just the way it worked. And, and then we found out that the other school division actually had this, but there was a bit of a process. Uh, I don't want to make anything look bad here, but she went through quite a process to make sure that these two divisions got along and the right thing got to Megan's classroom where she could do this in a, in a more efficient way. And she doesn't let go, you know, this is what happens to parents. <laughs> so I support that process, but I'm not really the one that was the advocate. I, I, I help in other ways, you know. Yeah. So yeah. uh, I tend to look for creative solutions. So I remember when Megan wanted to go along the riverbank, uh, my brother and I built, and my, my dad uh, was quite handy at those things too. So we built this wheelchair accessible outdoor thing with, out of a couple of used parts and a couple of giant bicycle wheels that, that didn't allow anybody to go anywhere. It wasn't CSA approved by any means, but it let her get out and about. And, and since then, we've seen um, the industry respond in ways... If you go to a beach, there's often uh, accessible uh, wheelchairs with big wheels that people can get around in. None of that stuff was around back in the 80s. So things have, have really improved, maybe partly because of this kind of advocacy and, and maybe because uh, uh, some older folks that have got disabilities are wanting to get out and about too. You know, they, you participate in things. Um, Megan used to go to birthday parties and... Yeah, it was always a little tricky because you'd have to carry the wheelchair in. <laughs> and, uh, but they sometimes would accommodate that by going to parties at the bowling, Eastview Bowl. So Eastview is pretty good at that. And they have, maybe you've seen that for people from, have Sherbrooke had outings there? They've, they've got a, a bowling thing that you put on your knees and you can drop the ball yes. down. And, and it's quite good. So Megan tended to be the best bowler. <laughs> So those kinds of things are pretty cool. Um, I'm really off topic here in terms of advocacy, but it's I get like I say, it's a lifestyle. You don't think about these things. Yeah. Uh, it's just what you do. Um, I'm I'm so like I, you you know how highly I, I think of you, and one of the things I really admire about you. Was it no? <laughs> no, it's it's true. I think you're wonderful, and I, and I one of the things I really admire about you is is just how how you how you view things like your your perspective your your lens that you see the world through and i and i'm wondering when you when you were going about saskatoon um and you walk into buildings or you see public spaces or you see parks um even someone's backyard um how like do you view it charles through an accessibility lens oh i especially the parks and the outdoor areas i find that kind of frustrating because we do a lot of traveling and oh i'm going to recommend uh this is a good okay so you you like podcasts obviously you must listen to some yes. too do you, do you know uh, roman mars and the 99 percent invisible oh, yes. podcast have you listened to curb cuts episode oh. 308 you know the episode number oh it's just it's the best one it's about uh, ed roberts and it's uh it's his journey in the 60s and 70s in berkeley going to university and there were no curb cuts can you believe it like those things that we have on the corner of the streets, they didn't exist. Curbs, curbs were all square. And they had a guerrilla group that went out with hammers. And night. <laughs> it's, it's a really cool story. So uh, I would recommend that to all your listeners and, uh, and all the other Roman Mars ones too, because they're, they're quite interesting. Um, what, what, 
Oh yeah. So when I go around the city uh, and and watching Megan travel, because the sidewalks here are abysmal often. They're too narrow. They're too bumpy. Uh, she will typically go on the road, and her dog will go on the sidewalk. And and so knowing that, uh, it's probably better to have some kind of gradation of, of pathways and sidewalks. It's the, pa the parks are really good if you can get you could have paved pathways. But often there isn't a curb cut where the pathway hits the curb because the parks people don't connect well, I think, with the engineering infrastructure people on the roads. So I'm, I'm always looking at these things and wondering why we can't get better coordination. Um, so there's, there's those sorts of things. And then I, I know here's another advocacy one. So Megan works at Home Depot uh, across uh, in Stonebridge there, and, and she would walk home uh, with her dog sometimes after work. So she has to go over this bridge on Clarence. And the routinely that bridge would move in the wintertime and create a little crack at the, at the end. Which the bridge would move? Up. Well, the, the ground would settle. Okay. Pardon oh, me, oh, I see. Yeah. Pardon me the, the bridge is absolutely stable. Okay. Don't misunderstand me. <laughs> No, that bridge is not moving. Okay. But but the, the ground right. outside responds a little bit to freeze thaw and there's some movement there. And I think it's now gotten pretty stable, but for every spring, routinely Lala would have to foam the city and they would have to patch it and make sure that it was smooth enough for her to get over there. Uh, so those things are quite specific and very important because it, it's a it's a barrier. Like you've got to have a, a smooth track. And I, I also, having traveled so much, we find that it's uh, a lot easier. Like these up and down bumpy things are really difficult in a power chair. You watch Megan go over, it's just like Well, anybody, you see them at Sherbrooke too. And uh, in a lot of places, it's really uh, better if you can just have some protection, but keep the, the pavement straight through on those blocks in the middle of the street. Like there's so many ups and downs and rounds and about crossing streets sometimes. And it would be easier if it was just smoother and flatter. So I look at those kinds of details and kind of question why we can't do that. But I know they're all engineering standards somehow. But uh, and then when you look, when you go into buildings, often uh, that's where the Rick Hansen course has has affected my view of these things. Now uh, I used to just wonder, well, I wonder how Megan would he get in here, uh, and then uh, I found it quite interesting because she loves to go to movies and we go to theaters quite a bit, and getting in and out of theaters is is kind of interesting. Uh, People tend to try and open doors for you, but they tend to get in the way when they're trying to open the door. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of fun to watch that, but uh, the operator buttons are usually in a place that it's inconvenient to, I mean, it's fine. Uh, yeah, so you, you push the door, push the button, but then the door opens into you so you can't get into the door. And that happens so often on these buildings. And I wondered why that happened, because there's, and that's and then this Rick Hansen uh, course uh, has very specific guidelines about entries to buildings and how you can make them work, and we have to talk about how that is. But it's it's so positive. It, it doesn't. It's not a punitive thing. Like these are the regulations. If you would like to make your building a certifiably accessible building, this these are some of the positive things you could do to make that. So it it encourages people to uh, to go out and uh, be. Um, I would say positive about accessibility as opposed to saying I just have to meet a regulation. So um, I don't know if you know how the LEED system works for sustainability on buildings. So back in, uh, when did that start? Maybe in the 2000s uh, when there was a lot of talk about energy efficiency and sustainability and making buildings better, uh, they had a LEED certification program that, about sustainability. So there were uh, sessions around energy and insulation and um, basically seeing uh, how much daylight you get in your building and, and, how, and how 
uh, minimum water usage and you got points for these different things and then your building could become certified uh, bronze gold or silver and then it was even a platinum level I think but uh, it was a way of encouraging people to take sustainability seriously in the design and people got on board with that and most schools in the province are required to be LEED certified now and uh, it's a positive thing it's almost become part of the culture of design now because we did so many buildings that were LEED certified that we started to naturally put in the daylight factors and naturally put in the higher levels of insulation and naturally put in uh, the water saving features and, and the electrical engineers would start to work with LED lights and, and reduce the, the carbon footprint basically to meet the LEED standards. So the LEED standard became the standard for the building. So now with, with the Rick Hansen program, it's a little bit like that. Uh, they've got levels, oh, I have to dig my textbook out here, but it's got um, ways of approaching your building. So there's how you actually get at it from the point, of, right from the point of view of the bus arriving or the, the parking lot or how you get from your car or the bus into the building. And people don't think about that because there's no real standard for that. And uh, then there's uh, the approach and what the ramps are like. And not just whether there is a ramp, but whether that ramp responds to um, visual cues and 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 it's not just about wheelchair access it's uh, people that have visual impairments it, it even talks about um, anxiety issues like if you if you are approaching many public buildings especially hospitals and things that are a little bit complex you can develop some anxiety because you don't know where the entrance is you don't know how to get in and you can imagine that if you're using a mobility device uh, not every door is actually wheelchair accessible. Which is the one? Do I park in the right place? Like, there's a lot of stuff that goes around that. And this this uh, is the first time that I was aware of that where somebody uh, went to some trouble to put together a whole system. Uh, not just uh, people tend to focus on ramps and washrooms, but <laughs> that's what the building code does. But this is so much more. It even talks about signage. Uh, and, and you know signage is so confusing in so many buildings uh, it's got a type of signage it requires the signage to be at a certain height so you can naturally see it in the, in the right relationship to the doorway that it's supposed to be signage for you know there's all, and all kinds of things that seem like common sense but tend not to happen unless you actually focus on them you know uh, and it's it's complicated being an architect there's you got to worry about all the engineers there's so many building code issues zoning issues budgets, uh, client program requirements, the, the provincial government for schools has certain square footage you have to meet on this and that. So by the time you've done all that, you're pretty much exhausted and you kind of forget sometimes about accessibility. <laughs> so uh, it's it's really important to to have a client kind of embrace that and say, yes, we would like to make our building meet a Rick Hansen standard. And then it becomes part of your architectural agenda. And then everyone on the team takes it seriously. And, and just like with the LEED certification, so uh, you sometimes have an accessibility certification person that's part of your, your building team. And, uh, you know, I can play that role, but there's others in the province that have taken the course that can do that too. Uh, but the client has to embrace this as something we really want to do. Um, we're working with the food bank on a, on a new initiative now, and they've, they've got excited about this, and I think they want to take that on as one of the many things that they're doing quite creatively. Um, I, I, have, I have so many questions about the, the Rick Hansen part of, the, of of your education but i the, you just mentioned something that that made me think about you know you said you you've got to get the client on board or get them excited so how how do you how do you get when you're working with a client charles and they're designing or maybe redesigning a space how how do you get them excited 
um, about about the Rick Hansen Foundation, you know, the, the certification and just accessibility in, in general? How do you get them pumped up? Well, that's a really good question. I, how do you do that? Because <laughs> I wouldn't say I've been terribly successful. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, going forward, I mean, I think it, it's probably got more to do with finding the right opportunity because uh, it's going to take a little extra money and it's going to take a little extra space and it's going to take a little extra time. So uh, you, you do have to have a client that's uh, maybe got that mission in mind already uh, that wants to provide some services. It, I think you might be able, with the right situation, with even a, an office client that wants to project the right public image, too, because it does create a good image. Like, our building has a sign on it, certified gold by the Rick Hansen Foundation. That's exciting. That's cool. That's something to brag about. And there are two buildings in the province that have that designation right now. Uh, actually, I think three. The, Mosaic, the new Mosaic Stadium did that. They went through that process. And I haven't been there yet, I'm, but I'd, I'm looking forward to seeing a rider game at some point. I'm not sure if I'm quite ready. <laughs> and uh, finding out how they did that. But, but there's a whole series of requirements around theater space that make things a little bit more equal for individuals that are using mobility devices or have visual impairments so I, I'm expecting to find uh, not just one row of wheelchair seats in the back corner somewhere or just in the front row which typically happens I expect that they're mixed around and so that there's an opportunity to be more engaged and more normal in terms of the way things work it's so interesting you you um, mentioned mosaic because I've been fortunate to yes but I've been there with some of our residents from Sherbrooke when we go for the Labor Day Classic. How was that? And, oh, it was, Charles, it was amazing because the, I think it's, the, it's the best place to watch, um, the game because it's, um, you're right on the street level and you don't have to, um, you know, to, to yeah, it goes down. Yeah. And then, and then the, the, it's, it's kind of like, um, not a, fenced off isn't the right um term but like you you have your own space like you, you're not smushed into next to someone in in a regular seat kind of deal. you you have your own space and i know for like for myself but especially for our recreation staff and our volunteers that were um helping our residents the the freedom that they felt to like they, they had space to help our residents whenever they needed was really great and and i because i had season tickets at the old taylor field and <laughs> and no it it was not an accessible Really, it wasn't. Accept- it was built a long time ago. So it's. So I. I just think that's interesting that you. Um. That you mentioned. Um. Mosaic, but. Um. Yeah, you're. You're so right about the. You know, it. It will take a little bit of extra money and a little bit of extra time, but. In In your mind, the benefits are worth it, aren't they? Well, they are because. Uh, everyone benefits. I mean, this is the point that I was making earlier. It's not just individuals that are using a wheelchair or, or a mobility device. Uh, you might have a cane this week or you might be pushing a stroller and you need the extra space and it's just a little bit easier for everybody when you do that. Uh, I had a thought that I was... Oh, the other buildings that are certified. Uh, Ronald McDonald House, I believe, I, I checked with the Rick Hansen people, is also certified. But I haven't been there since they did the addition. But you, you've talked to, uh, you've been there too, right? Yes, for the for the podcast. And again, it's just an, an amazing place. Yeah, yeah. So you, maybe just from those two experiences, you can sense that there's a, a, a layer of accessibility and, and simplicity and universal design that goes along with a Rick Hansen certification that would be of benefit. So if I can put the plug in then uh, for that, uh, when I took the course, it was quite 
uh, I'd already semi-retired, so I had the time. It was uh, a two-week course, and it was four days a week, six hours a day. Like, it was 20, two weeks of 24. They were separated by two weeks, but 24 hours a week times two. So it was 48-hour commitment. It was, a, it was a big deal, uh, but so good. I mean, they put you through... A uh, you know we put put uh, blinders on and they give you several different kinds of of canes. Like I didn't you know with visual impairment I had no idea how complicated that was. But also some of the cool devices they have to help. Like there's roller canes and ceramic tips and different kinds of things that I I quite I was quite engaged with this stuff. <laughs> uh, and uh, you you can really see what a difference subtle design features make in a building for people that have these visual impairments. And it's not just people that are completely, you f again, you focus uh, on somebody who's completely blind, but lots and lots of people have levels of impairment, color blindness, different kinds of things. And uh, if you, you know, they're affected by glare, they're affected by uh, not enough contrast. And so there's ways of, of addressing that in a simple way. So it, especially for interior designers, I, I would really recommend interior designers take this. And the course has been uh, condensed now, I think, for professionals. They've got a a two-week course that I think is just eight hours each for two weeks. And I think it's even available online through Athabasca College. You can check. I'll give you some links for your website. But uh, if you do take that course, then it gives you that sense of these other things, and it would make it better for everybody. I mean, who, who doesn't want to have a building that isn't glaring or is a little bit easier to use? And you want to make sure the signage is in the right place. And, and you can justify then spending a little bit more uh, on signage with your client if you've got uh, some backup. So this has been proven to work. They've done research on this, and, and uh, uh, it's a little bit easier to understand and navigate your building if you do this in this way. So it, it actually is, is helpful. Um, you, like, it, it's so clear that you've, you've learned so much on, on, you know, through, throughout your career. Um, and it, and it, it, do you think, Charles, that you would have learned all all that you have in terms of accessibility in, in so many different ways had it not been for Megan? Oh, I, for sure Megan was the influence behind a lot of that. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm sure I would have gone off on some different tangent uh, because of that. So she's had a huge influence on, on the way I've directed things and what I've done. Yeah. Um, la last question for you, because I, I know we're going to go see Megan in a little yeah. bit. Um, I'm, I'm wondering, you... You you mentioned a, um, a few times like some some stories um, about the the community and and I I don't know I I know working at Sherbrooke has certainly opened my eyes in ways that that I never had before in terms of accessibility and in, in, in so many different ways I still remember vividly um, going along with the uh, the grade six IGEN class once to um, Broadway Avenue and uh, the kids were pushing each other in wheelchairs to get a sense in terms of oh, yeah. just the how bumpy the sidewalks were and stuff. And, and I, I was in a wheelchair and, and yeah, it, it, they're very bumpy. Um, Charles, how, how do we, how do we as a, as a community then, um, how can, how can we sort of spark that interest more and, and get people caring more that, that maybe it, it hasn't even crossed their minds and, and they, you know, when they, when they view a public space, they're, they're not looking at, you know, is this accessible for people um, in a wheelchair or people that um, have, you know, vision issues or hearing issues or even, like you said, anxiety? How, how do we get people to care? That's a really big question, I know. <laughs> I don't know. I think just the best way is through empathy. So if people can experience it somehow, I mean, you talked about the IGEN class uh, taking turns using, using wheelchairs. I, I remember it was kind of funny. Uh, we were at the Winnipeg 
Children's Museum. And they had an area in the museum where people could try out wheelchairs. So <laughs> Megan's in there with Herbert. Megan was in there with her wheelchair. It was pretty funny because the kids were pestering her like, that's the nicest wheelchair. Why don't you get out so we can use it? <laughs> it was so funny. <laughs> She's trying to explain, well, this is my chair. Go, no, no, but she, it's my turn now. I want you to get out, you know. So, uh, you know, so you have to have nice chairs if you're going to have that. <laughs> so that was funny. Um, no, I think it's through empathy. People, uh, if they volunteer at Sherbrooke or get to know people that have some kind of a disability and, and try and walk in their shoes is really the only way to do it. You need empathy. I think just to say you should be interested, yeah, it's not, it's not, you know, not really going to happen. You need to somehow experience that with a person who means something to you. Uh, so connecting people to people in Sherbrooke through your volunteers is a good way to do that. Uh, getting school classes to experience this is, is good. Um, and I think it's got to be broader, uh, as you mentioned, you know, visual uh, impairments, uh, acoustic concerns, ang especially anxiety issues and mental health now. Uh, we, um, we were fortunate enough to design the new mental health building at the university, and that was quite a, a, an interesting and exciting project to do. Uh, if you, you can't really go in because it's quite secure, but if you ever go inside that building, it is one of the nicest spaces in the entire city. Beautiful natural light, and you get views of the riverbank, and it's, it's a calming kind of environment, and lots of special things about it, but uh, mental health is a big, big issue, and, and the way buildings are set up can, can help with that. I mean, uh, I don't know if you've heard the Roman Mars uh, episode on, on how people who um, have hearing disabilities have to communicate with their hands. They need more space to walk beside each other because you can't, you can't talk without having room to see each other. So, so having uh, wider hallways in the main corridors of, of buildings facilitates that. And as also with anxiety, people don't want to bump into each other. <laughs> it's not just a pandemic. They, they want a little more space maybe if, if, you're, if you're worried about that sort of thing. So especially in the main flows, there's got to be a little bit more room, I think, to accommodate some of those kinds of concerns in a more natural way. Uh, but back to your main, main question, I think it's through empathy. You've got to find ways to connect people uh, to experience uh, walking other people's shoes is, is the best way to do it. Yeah. You heard Charles mention the word empathy a few seconds ago. I asked Megan the same question. How do you get people to care about accessibility? And her answer is proof of just how in sync she is with her father. So Megan, the last word in this episode belongs to you. I would say try being in a wheelchair um, for one day, um, the whole day, <laughs> um, to be, to know what it is like for us who are physical uh, disabled to know exactly what to do. Um, because if you're not in that situation, sometimes you don't even know, right? So you can't have to be in their shoes first in order to know what to do. 
You have been listening to Episode 9, Season 4 of YXE Underground. My name is Eric Anderson. I host, produce, and edit this local podcast. A huge thank you to Megan Olford and her lovely service dog, Q, as well as Charles Olford and his wife, Lila, for being so wonderful to work with in this episode. I learned so much from all of you, and I feel very lucky to have told this story. If you like what you just heard, feel free to give YXE Underground a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Don't forget you can hear every single episode on the website, yxeunderground.com. Follow the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and that's where you'll find some amazing photos of Megan and Q and Charles taken by Saskatoon photographer and my friend, Rana Andres. I want to thank Natasha Lipney at CBC Saskatchewan for the opportunity to write a story for the CBC website based on this episode. Natasha, you are an editing genius, and I really appreciate your support of the podcast and especially this episode. I also want to thank Danger Dynamite here in Saskatoon for creating and maintaining the website. And before I go, I would like to acknowledge that these interviews were gathered on Treaty 6 territory and the traditional homeland of the Métis. YXE Underground is a production of the Salt Hammer Production Company. My name is Eric Anderson. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you soon, Saskatoon.